This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia builds secure networks that keep America strong. That's why 90% of the U.S. depends on Nokia to stay connected. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, June 15. In today's news, New York's governor threatens to reverse reopenings because people aren't social distancing. A Republican congressman loses his seat because he officiated a gay wedding. And the Russians sentence a former U.S. Marine to 16 years on trumped-up espionage charges. But first, the big idea. A Virginia sheriff apologized this weekend to a black pastor who was arrested this month after calling 911 for help when a white family allegedly threatened and assaulted him after trying to dump a refrigerator on his property. Shenandoah County Sheriff Tim Carter apologized to Pastor Leon McCray Sr. Prosecutors have also dropped a charge against McCray for brandishing a licensed handgun in self-defense. The 61-year-old described what happened in a sermon at Lighthouse Church, where he preaches. McCray is a retired Alexandria real estate investor of some means. He served with distinction for 24 years in the Air Force. He retired as a master sergeant. He has no criminal record, and he had never been arrested before. Pastor McCray said a mob of whites surrounded, jostled, and threatened him, telling him that, quote, black lives don't matter. McCray said he then drew a legally concealed handgun, giving him time to call 911. But when the deputies responded, he said he wasn't even given the opportunity to tell them what was going on. Instead, he was handcuffed. He said members of the White family that had come to dump the fridge on his land yelled racial epithets and threatened him. McCray said he was driven away in a patrol car in handcuffs while the five whites stood with the white deputies waving at him. And the five white people have now been charged with assorted misdemeanors. My colleague Spencer Sue reports that they deny wrongdoing. In his sermon at the church, he criticized deputies for rushing to judgment. He said it would not have happened if he was white. Two sheriff's office supervisors have been placed on unpaid administrative leave over the incident, and an investigation is pending. Look, sadly, as you know, this is not the most egregious thing that has happened to an African-American man in the past few weeks. But I kick off this week with this story because I think it's a revealing vignette of the indignities that still face black men from all walks of life in June 2020. And it's important for us to understand that as the national conversation continues in the wake of George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis police custody on Memorial Day. The biggest flare-up this weekend came in Atlanta, where the death of Rayshard Brooks unleashed a fresh wave of protests that in some cases turned violent. Family members on Sunday recalled Brooks as a good father who was getting his life back together when he was shot and killed in a confrontation with Garrett Rolfe and another Atlanta police officer after a DUI stop. The Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office determined yesterday that Brooks suffered organ damage and blood loss from two gunshot wounds and that his official cause of death was gunshot wounds of the back. Brooks's widow is calling for the officers to be prosecuted. This one's less clear-cut than some of the other cases. Officers were dispatched Friday night to a Wendy's in Atlanta on a complaint about a man parked and asleep in the drive-thru. The officers performed a sobriety test on the man, later identified as Brooks. When he failed the test, officers attempted to put him in custody. Their response escalated, and Brooks grabbed an officer's stun gun and then began running away. 
Video of the encounter appears to show Brooks turning back toward the officer and pointing the stolen taser at him, at which point the officer is then seen drawing a weapon from his holster and firing at Brooks. The Fulton County District Attorney says a decision on whether to bring charges in this case will be made sometime around Wednesday. The police department quickly fired the officer who shot his gun and pulled the other officer off street patrol. Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields then resigned on Saturday. The Wendy's, where Brooks was shot, was set on fire by Black Lives Matter protesters after a day of unrest that continued from Saturday into Sunday. Meanwhile, on the Sunday shows, Senate Republicans previewed their policing reform bill. Senate Republicans are planning to release draft legislation on Wednesday that addresses officer misconduct, training and tactics, and a system for local departments to better report cases in which officers' actions result in serious injury or death. Senators James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma, and Tim Scott, the African-American senator from South Carolina, they have been taking point on the GOP's answer to the bill released last week by House Democrats. Both endorsed a ban on chokeholds yesterday. But while Scott stressed on Meet the Press that both chambers of Congress and the White House want to tackle the issue, it's not clear whether such a chokehold ban will appear in the GOP bill. In a bid to hold individual officers more accountable for their actions, the House Democratic proposal includes a provision to change the doctrine of qualified immunity, which would make it easier to sue officers who recklessly violate civil rights, whether or not they did so with intent. Scott called that provision a poison pill on Face the Nation. Democrats say it must be included. Here in D.C., protests continued on Sunday for a 16th straight day. Black Lives Matter Plaza was transformed into a church on Sunday morning with thousands of mostly African-American worshipers praying, protesting, kneeling, and dancing near the White House after marching from the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Masks were required. Marchers were spaced out in rows. Marshals frequently paused the flow to keep buffers between the lines. This same area, right outside St. John's Church, where mostly peaceful protesters were violently cleared out before President Trump's photo op two Mondays ago, was transformed by Sunday afternoon into a kaleidoscope of prayers, chants, singing, and preaching from Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, and Christian faith leaders. It was a multi-faith effort to bless the protest movement. Many marchers heading out from the soaring Black History Museum on the Mall earlier in the day for what organizers called a prayer walk emphasized the need for activism steeped in prayer. They cited the famous scripture from the book of James, faith without works is dead. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo threatened Sunday to reverse reopenings. He called out Manhattan and the Hamptons after seeing evidence of rampant social distancing violations in those affluent areas. Cuomo said the state received 25,000 complaints about establishments serving customers and allowing drinking on the streets this weekend, and that those two areas led the way in terms of the number of complaints. He said he is not going to allow situations to exist that we know have a high likelihood of causing an increase in the spread of the virus. There are lots of places in the country that are seeing more of an increase than New York, but continue to relax their restrictions. President Trump is still planning on holding his large-scale rally this coming Saturday in Tulsa. The arena holds 20,000 people. The Trump campaign says more than 80,000 people have RSVP'd. Number two, freshman Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman of Virginia 
who drew intense backlash from evangelicals within his own party for presiding over a same-sex wedding last year, lost the GOP nomination this weekend to challenger Bob Good, a former fundraiser for Liberty University who describes himself as a, quote, biblical conservative. My colleague Jenna Portnoy, who covers Virginia politics for us, reports that the defeat of Riggleman potentially puts this central Virginia seat within reach for Democrats in the general election for the first time in more than a decade. This is the seat Tom Perriello won in 2008. Riggleman is the first of 73 candidates endorsed by Trump this cycle to lose an election, marring the president's undefeated record. Good won a drive through nominating contest outside Lynchburg with 58 percent of the vote. The results were announced on Sunday. Riggleman had not conceded, saying he was evaluating his options, which could include legal action against the party amid reports of what he called voting irregularities and ballot stuffing. On Saturday, 2,500 pre-registered party loyalists came from throughout the sprawling rural district to cast ballots in the parking lot of a church called Tree of Life. The convention didn't feature the traditional speeches and horse trading because of social distancing restrictions intended to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Riggleman's campaign had complained for weeks that Good had an unfair advantage and said the nomination should be decided in a primary. While it was a very convenient location for Good's base supporters, <laughs> the church was right by his house. Many of Riggleman's backers had to drive up to six hours round trip to be able to vote for him. Riggleman, a former Air Force intelligence officer and a distillery owner with a libertarian streak, leveraged his experience in the military and as a small business owner to stand out among the freshman class. He's widely admired on Capitol Hill. But Good accused Riggleman of being out of touch with the party's base because he agreed to officiate a same-sex wedding of two of his campaign volunteers. Number three, the Russians today sentenced retired U.S. Marine Paul Whelan to 16 years for so-called espionage. The 50-year-old has said throughout the trial that he was framed. His lawyer says he was unwittingly handed a flash drive containing supposed state secrets while visiting Russia for a wedding in late 2018. Whelan has said he thought the flash drive that he received from an acquaintance contained holiday photos. Even before the verdict came down, Whelan appeared to believe that the decision was a foregone conclusion. Shouting from within a glass-enclosed area that the case was a political charade, after the verdict, Whelan shouted that he had no English translation and had no idea what the verdict was. His lawyer says he plans to appeal. The U.S. Embassy in Moscow calls the show trial a mockery of justice, and his treatment is shameful. Whelan wasn't permitted to phone his family until 16 months into his detainment, and the embassy says he didn't have access to English-speaking doctors after he got a hernia and needed surgery. Meanwhile, Maria Ressa, a hard-hitting Filipino-American journalist, was found guilty today of so-called cyber libel. Ressa, who heads the news organization Rappler, was charged along with a former researcher for an article the site published in 2012. Human rights watchdogs and media organizations are decrying these charges as politically motivated harassment. Rappler has been at the forefront of important reporting on Filipino President Rodrigo Duarte's vicious policies, particularly his war on drugs that has left thousands dead as a result of extrajudicial killings. The bottom line is that autocracy is on the march across the world and democracy is in retreat which is why it is more important than ever that America be a beacon of hope and freedom. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, June 15th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.